Do you remember a day and age before Google and YouTube? Oh, yeah. That day and age, if you wanted to find out how to get directions from A to B, you had to consult that one thing, a map, an atlas. Or that day and age where if you wanted to figure out how to prepare a Thanksgiving turkey, you had to actually call your mom or your grandma. Or that day and age where if you wanted to fix a home issue or a car issue, a simple one, or a simple medical issue, you had to consult a professional. But now you can Google it, YouTube it, and fake it till you make it. But what if we're talking about suffering? What if we want to know how to suffer? Or what the purpose of suffering is or why trials and suffer, suffering exists, why they exist and what they produce in us? Or what does it look like to live faithfully in the midst of suffering? You can't Google these things. You can't YouTube this, find a how-to video on how to suffer. They require more. These questions require more. Now, I must admit that though I have experienced deep suffering in my life, and I've walked many through the valley of the shadow of death, I recognize that I have not suffered as deeply as potentially many of you in this room. Neither have we collectively suffered maybe as deeply as those in other parts of the world. And so I must say that I don't feel equipped to preach to you this morning on the topic of suffering. I, I don't really have much important to say or any comfort to extend to you. But God does. God does in his word. And so let's run to him this morning. Let's go to him. Let's see what he has to say from his word. For his grace is sufficient. And his word is sufficient to answer the deepest questions and struggles of our lives. So if you would, please open your Bible to 1 Peter First Peter, if you go to the end of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and rewind just a few pages, a few books, you will arrive at First Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. This morning, we are returning to our occasional sermon series in this letter. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under a chair near you. You can find the book of First Peter on page 953. I'll be reading out of the ESV translation this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. This is God's comforting, soul-orienting, and hope-giving word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, 
as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey? the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. He is worthy to be praised. Let's say that together. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Before we work through this text, let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word, O Lord, is truth. Open our eyes and our ears and our minds to your word this morning. Give us soft hearts, porous hearts, so that the word may dwell richly within us. And Lord, I ask that you would strengthen your weak servant now to proclaim your word. May the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. You are truly our rock and our redeemer. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray, amen. Well, before we walk through these verses, I want to reorient us to the letter for just a moment. In chapters 1 through verse uh, 11 of chapter 4, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has called the church, encouraged the church, pilgrim exiles us, to live with a living, new, gospel-driven hope and to rejoice in the God of our salvation. Peter has called the church to be the church, to be the holy, loving, new people of God, that we are called to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a new people, Jew and Gentile, He wanted us to know, he wants us to know that we are living stones being built up into the spiritual house, the New Testament, new covenant temple of God in and through Jesus Christ. And he has assured us that those who have turned from sin and turned toward Christ in faith have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? In short, Peter wants us to know within this letter who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, and how we are to live in Christ before a watching world. There is so much spiritual encouragement packed into this letter. And here in these verses, our passage this morning, Peter returns to a central thread that weaves through the letter. He picks up the thread of suffering. And we can trace this thread through the earlier chapters of of the book. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, Peter said that if necessary, the people of God would endure unjust suffering and be refined. 
through that suffering, for Christ suffered unjustly. That's what we see in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, as well as chapter 2, verse 19. Then in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, Peter said that it is better to suffer for doing good than what is evil, for Christ also suffered as the righteous for the unrighteous. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says that Christ, being truly God, but also truly human, suffered in the flesh. And so we also suffer in this life. And here in verses 12 through 19, pulling the thread of suffering through to the forefront, Peter, the weaver, continues weaving. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the main point and outline for our time in this passage this morning. You could think of this as a handle by which you can carry this text into your life this coming week. Here's the main point. Suffering connects us to Christ and to one another. Suffering connects us to Christ and to one another. And Peter doesn't just make this point, he explains this point by offering a reason for suffering. He does this in verses 12 through 13. He offers a result of suffering. We see this in 14 through 18. And then he offers a response to suffering in verse 19. So a reason, a result, and a response to suffering. Okay, so first, a reason for suffering. Look with me again at verses 12 through 13. And this will be my longest point this morning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Over the centuries, people have struggled to think rightly and speak rightly about suffering. And we see this in the variety of perspectives on suffering from the world. And I have three of those for you, three of those just briefly. Some have said, perspective number one, pain in life is inevitable, but suffering is not. Pain is what the world does to you. Suffering is what you do to yourself by the way you think about the pain you received. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Perspective number two, To live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. Perspective three, suffering is due to our disconnection with the inner soul. Meditation establishes that connection. Now, each of these individuals may have had the best intentions in explaining and pontificating on suffering in this way. But do you hear it? The conflict, the differences, the confusion. You get these three folks in the same room on on a panel discussion on suffering, and it's going to be helpless, and it's going to be hopeless. But where there is confusion in the world on suffering, this book actually deals with it. It actually deals with the suffering that we encounter, and it provides clarity on reasons for it, provides clarity so that we may make sense of our misery, our trials and our suffering in this life. So 
Let's focus in here on verse 12. I want us to see how Peter addresses pilgrim exiles here. He speaks to them in love. He tenderly calls the church his beloved. Like a husband carefully speaking to and shepherding his wife, like a father or mother tenderly addressing his or her children, Peter gently shepherds the church here on a hard part of being human. He speaks as one who loves, understands, and identifies with the church. And notice, he doesn't scold. He doesn't scold them. He counsels the church. He counsels us. May we speak to one another and address one another in the midst of affliction with the same kind of tenderness and love as we see in Peter here. He says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. What is that trial that he is speaking of? Well, this could be any affliction or persecution or sickness or estrangement, estrangement that the church may encounter. But I want us to notice here that Peter gives one of the reasons, a reason for suffering. He says suffering is a test. Another translation of this verse could be, don't be surprised when the fiery furnace comes upon you to test you. What is the purpose of a furnace? To refine, to cleanse, to purify. I believe Peter has in mind the wise words of Proverbs 27 here, referring to the fire, the furnace that purifies gold. He is also connecting this to what he has said earlier in the letter, back in chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. If necessary, you will be grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, whether it is past, present, or future, suffering is inevitable. Tests inevitably come, and in this life, suffering is a furnace that destroys us or refines us and purifies our faith. See, Peter understood this firsthand. He was well acquainted with grief. We don't have time to look at all of the, all the passages in the Gospels that this is made clear. We also see Later in his life, at his death, as he was crucified upside down for the sake of Christ, according to church history. So these words are coming from a co-sufferer, not from someone who is sterile and kind of looking at suffering from the outside. He is speaking to us from the inside as a co-sufferer. And so he says, do not be surprised by suffering, beloved. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial. He is encouraging us to recognize that suffering is normal. It's part and parcel of life in a fallen world. It's part and parcel of God's plan for his people, not in a cruel or sadistic way, but in a way that produces endurance, character, and hope. And we see this in Scripture, don't we? We see this in the New Testament. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, we read, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, verses 2 through 5. Through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, here in verse 12, says, do not think that suffering is strange, beloved. Do not think of suffering as a stranger, but instead think of it as a guest. Maybe it's just me, but I'm often surprised by suffering. This is a symptom of what I call the invincibility syndrome. We often live our lives as if we're in control, independent, invincible, impenetrable to pain. We see ourselves as entitled to the good life without suffering, but this is not reality. And we need to be reminded of this, don't we? We need to be reminded of this whether we are heading into a season of suffering or in a season of suffering or coming out of a season of suffering. We need to be reminded that suffering is normal and that it is part of the regular programming of the Christian life. Peter goes on, he says, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Instead, rejoice and be glad. I know what you're thinking. What? What, Peter? Come on, rejoice. Why does Peter say this? Because he wants us to see that the primary reason for suffering is because in the midst of it, we can rejoice because we share in Christ's sufferings. So we see in verse 13. Oh, beloved, we are close to Christ in the midst of fiery trials. Do you believe that? Peter does. Suffering connects us to Christ. It connects us to him who is himself the suffering servant and savior. This is what we heard earlier as Pastor Jeff read Isaiah 53, all 12 verses. See, from Christ's cradle to the cross, from his circumcision to his crucifixion, Christ suffered. And we can trace this through the life of Christ in the Gospels. It is there where we see that Christ suffered throughout, this, his, throughout his life, most clearly in his death on the cross. And therefore, the church, his body, those connected to him and connected to one another, also suffer. To stand in and with Christ, to walk with him, is to share in his sufferings. Beloved, Jesus, the suffering servant, is the one who walks the black and blue path of grief ahead of us, for us, and with us. And our suffering, our trials are seen by him. He knows them because we are connected to him. He knows those who are his, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.19. And we are his chosen ones, holy and beloved, as he says, as Paul says in Colossians 3. Christ sees our pain. He sees abuse. And he sees mistreatment. 
And Christ, the suffering Savior, doesn't just see our suffering and know it at a distance. No, he walks with us. He sits with us and he speaks into our suffering words of grace and of comfort. So take heart. Know that there is purpose in suffering for when you suffer, you walk in the footsteps of your suffering Savior. The heart of Christ is heavy for those in the midst of suffering. And so in and through our trials, Jesus speaks from his heart the words of love. In our suffering, Jesus says, come to me, O weary and burdened one, and I will give you rest. In times of suffering, Jesus sees us and has compassion upon us just as he did the crowds in Matthew 14 at the feeding of the 5,000. After receiving word that his friend and cousin had just passed away, he retreats across the across the water, and he arrives to 10,000 people needing him. And what does he do? He has compassion. In the face of suffering, John's, in John 16, Jesus says, in me you have peace, in the world you have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Do you believe that? In seasons of suffering, Jesus stands with us and looks upon us as the one who identifies with us in our suffering and in our weakness as our great high priest, as it says in Hebrews 4. In times of suffering, Jesus is the lifter of our heads. He is a refuge for refugees. He is rest for distressed pilgrims on their journey home. And when we walk the path of suffering, we share in his sufferings and we display that we are his and that we are connected to him and that we are being further conformed into his image. But there's more. The best news for sufferers is that we have a suffering savior. So when we endure fiery trials and endure them in faith, we walk the path of glory, as it says there, later in verse 13, that will ultimately be revealed on the day Christ returns. And as we look and see the destined day arise, to be connected with Christ today is to be connected, yes, in suffering, but also to be connected to his glory. You see that? There's, a, there's an interconnection here. There's a link between Christ's suffering and Christ's glory. Our suffering and our glory in and through him. For those who share in the suffering of Christ will share in the glory of Christ. That's good news, amen? Amen. And therefore, Peter can say, rejoice and be glad in suffering. For when he returns, his glory will be fully revealed. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things will have passed away. As it says in Revelation 21, Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Oh, though we eagerly await that day, we don't have to wait to know the peace and comfort of Christ today. For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, we share abundantly in Christ's suffering. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort also. Oh, beloved, we can rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering because of the joy that awaits us in the coming of Christ. 
For in him there is glory and there is blessing, even in the deepest of valleys. And we see that in point two. Point two, a result of suffering. Look with me at verses 14 through 15. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's verses 14 through 18 there of 1 Peter 4. In our American Declaration of Independence, there's a key phrase that I think often shapes our lives. Dare I say, often even sometimes overrides the truth of Scripture for us here in the West. And it's this, we have certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This phrase is not inherently wrong, so don't don't hear me incorrectly here. The phrase is not inherently wrong, but it does have embedded within it an assumption. We feel entitled to life, liberty, and happiness. But are we? How does that square up with Peter's words? We aren't entitled to anything outside of the grace of Christ. And to be connected to him brings inevitable harm for his name. Here in this, these verses, Peter assumes that the church will encounter and has encountered harm and hatred for the sake of Christ. And Peter says, when you encounter this sort of persecution, this sort of suffering, when you're insulted for Christ, you are blessed, or quite literally, happy. Truly happy. A result of suffering well is blessing. And a result of suffering is that in the Spirit, in it, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. Those are the results of suffering that we see here in the text. That we receive blessing and we receive the Spirit of glory of God. Isn't that beautiful? I believe that there's a tendency in us to believe that God is far away when we are drowning in the flood of pain or persecution for the name of Christ, when we are hated by the world for being Bible people, when we're despised by the world for pursuing holiness and and keeping watch over our hearts and our minds, when we're insulted for calling sin, sin when we're estranged by family and friends for standing up for Christ, his word, and his people. And we may be be tempted to give up and to think that God is far away and that he has abandoned us when we encounter these sorts of persecutions. But this is not true. If you are afflicted and insulted for your faith in Christ, it is proof that you are connected to him and that you are with him and in him a sheep of his pasture. When you are insulted for his name, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Isn't that amazing? It's been said that suffering is not the absence of God, but a sign of his purifying presence. Christ is near to the brokenhearted. He is present with us in our pain. Christ is with us, blesses us, and rests upon us in the darkest circumstances. Peter didn't just arrive at this one day, right? He's, he's actually channeling the words of Christ here. He's encouraging us to remember the words of Christ from Matthew 5 in the most popular sermon ever told. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. This is what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. A result of suffering is blessing, a great heavenly reward, and the receiving of God himself. That is incredible. And so, when we don't have a clear answer, brothers and sisters, we don't have a clear answer on why God has permitted a particular season of suffering in our lives, we can rest in the truth that God is at work even when we cannot see it. We can rest in the truth that through our suffering, we are and ever will be blessed. Peter moves on in verses 15 through 18 with a contrast. According to Peter, there are two types of suffering, two ways to suffer. There's a Christian way and a worldly way, a shameless way and a shameful way, and God sees and judges both. This is why he says in verses 15 through 16, this is why he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's clear. Christian suffering, particularly persecution here, receives blessing and results in the glorification of God. Worldly suffering, because of sin or foolishness, receives deserved judgment and shame. Ultimately, we either suffer in Christ or we suffer outside of him. And it's clear, all will be judged. And that judgment starts with us, the household of God. That's what we see in verses 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes Proverbs 11. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When the ungodly sinner suffers, those outside of Christ, those who don't obey or respond to the gospel, the result is hopelessness, despair, and devastating judgment. That's the result of worldly suffering. But for the Christian, Judgment has fallen on Christ, for the righteous are saved in and through him. And so if you're here this morning and you have not responded in obedience and faith to the gospel of God, if you were here this morning and you are struggling to find a purpose and a reason for the suffering 
in your own life. If you're here this morning with no hope for today or tomorrow, then hear the words of the Apostle John. In chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God has extended himself to you through the Son. The sinless, suffering Savior, Jesus Christ, suffered the death of a murderer, a thief, a meddler, an evildoer, so that you wouldn't have to. That's amazing. That's the best news for every soul in this room. So if you have not responded to this gospel of Christ coming and being crucified and raising again on the third day so that we might have salvation and new life in and through him, I'm going to be standing at the back after the service. I would love to talk with you more about this hope that is actually lasting in the midst of all circumstances in this life. But Christian, the truth of the gospel, the truth that Christ took the judgment for your sin upon himself, the truth that Christ is with you, in you, and for you is good news for every day of your life. For the good, this good news shines brightly in times of bad news, doesn't it? Well, Peter has shown us thus far that suffering connects us to Christ and to one another. And he has given us a reason for suffering. That as we suffer, we share in Christ's suffering. And that suffering is a test that refines us. He has given us the result of suffering, blessing, true happiness, and the attaining of the spirit of glory and of God. And now, lastly, he gives us a response to suffering. Point three, a response to suffering. Look with me at verse 19 of chapter four. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Anytime we see a therefore in scripture, we should ask, what's it there for? Peter is connecting this verse, this exhortation to really everything he has said previously, but particularly this last section. Peter's connecting this to the whole. And he says, in light of all the truth I have given you thus far in this letter, particularly this last section, know that if you suffer, it is according to God's will. So entrust yourself to God. Oh, this is a hard truth, isn't it? But we will never understand our suffering rightly if we don't see the providence of God behind it. We won't. For only the Christian can sing. Whatever my God ordains is right. 
His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he does and follow where he guideth. Church, only the Christian can sing those words. Only those bought by the blood of the Lamb can proclaim whatever he ordains is right. Even when all the lights have gone out. I want us to see and notice the the plural form here. He says, let those who suffer entrust their souls. Because we suffer together as the people of God, we also together entrust our souls to our faithful God together. Again, suffering connects us to Christ and to one another. Peter is writing to people, yes. He's writing to Christians, yes. He's writing to the church and local churches there spread throughout Asia Minor. I want us to make sure that we're always connecting that. Scripture is written to the local church. Peter's encouraging us here to recognize that it is trials and it's suffering that Yes, bind us and bond us to Christ, but also bind and bond us to one another. They bind us together as we live life together, as we face loss together, as we bear one another's burdens together, as we repent, believe, forgive, love, be kind and tenderhearted, bear all the fruits of the Spirit toward one another with God's help as we face harm and hatred from the world together and as we face sickness and fight sin together. Beloved, we were created by God to entrust ourselves to God together. We were created by God to be in community with God and with one another. God is community. He is three in one. And he has created us to be in community with him and with one another through the blood of his son and to walk with one another in the pasture land of grace and mercy, but also in the deep and dark valleys that we encounter. Make no mistake, entrusting our souls to God is a local church effort. Entrusting our souls to God is a local church effort. For the church truly is a fellowship, a community of sufferers, aren't we? And it takes the whole church to do the work of the church. It takes the whole church to do the work of the church. And so Peter is exhorting us, the church here, to deep trust and deep fellowship in the throes of deep suffering. So in your own walk with God, I have have a couple questions for you. As you walk with God and walk with one another, I have some questions. Has suffering kept you from entrusting your soul to your faithful creator? Has suffering caused you to doubt, despair, and or distrust God? 
the answer to those questions is important. So what does it look like, EBC? What does it look like to entrust ourselves to God? Well, I'm going to give you a handful of exhortations and encouragement here in a, in a moment. But back in 2015, when I was a pastoral assistant at a church down in California, uh, I got a call one night from a family in the church to come down to the hospital. Their family, a rather large family, was together in the hospital room after the wife had given birth to a stillborn child. And this couple called the pastoral team at the church and said, can you please come to the hospital? Can you read scripture with us? And would you also print up some song sheets? We want to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness together. And so I, I roll into the, to the hospital and I walk in with, with the lead pastor there and we proceed to read scripture and sing while this family passes around this dead child. It was devastating. But in it, I saw a family. I saw Christians entrust themselves to their faithful creator. And so we sang, great is thy faithfulness. This is a window into what it looks like to suffer well and to entrust ourselves to God. So practically, functionally, what does this look like in our life together to have this sort of hope and trust in God and, and the desire to walk with one another through the deep valleys? What does this look like? Number one, run to the word. Run to the word. When we are suffering, the word is balm to the soul, isn't it? It gives us the words of love and the words of trust. So read Lamentations. Read Job and the Psalms. By reading those books annually, you will be better equipped to walk in the valley of affliction with other saints here in the church. Listen to hymns and songs that are rich with Scripture, both old and new. Many hymns capture word and lament so well. And if you'd like a list of songs, songs of lament, songs in times of suffering, then reach out. I'd love to share a list with you. So run to the word. Number two, run to prayer. The Psalms also give us the words of lament and trust-laden plea. When we are suffering, may we pray as the psalmist does and as the apostle does. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Increase my faith. Don't hide yourself from me, Lord, but look upon me and be merciful to me. So run to the word, run to prayer, and third, run to wise counsel. You know, there's nothing greater than having a godly friend sit with you as you are despairing in silence, 
but also having a godly friend that when the time is right, encourages you with the word. There's a tendency to isolate in times of suffering. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't isolate ourselves. We should seek someone to sit with us in the pain. I have watched the Mordhorst family do this well. My conversations with Bob over the last couple months, he has given and received counsel from the Word so well. And it's been such a testimony of God's grace in his life, but also in my own, as I've just been the beneficiary of his wisdom and love for both Cynthia and this church. My family has also received much loving counsel and word in the midst of our own family trial currently with my mom in ICU down at USC in California. I praise God for this. I praise God for you. Well, suffering connects us to Christ and connects us to one another. And Christ has given us the instruments of grace in the hardest of times. He has given us his word, his ear, and his people. That's so good. He has given us his word, his ear, and his people. And most importantly, he has given us himself in the person and work of Jesus. So beloved, know this. Heed the words of Paul or Peter here in verse 19 of chapter 4. God is faithful so you can entrust yourself to him. It's been said that God is at his very best when things seem to be at their very worst. And in the darkest of times, our hope is not in how firm we hold fast to him. But our hope is in that he holds fast to us. That is our hope. What grace. Let's pray. Father, we entrust ourselves to you. We do ask that you would, in good times and bad, entrust ourselves to you. Cause us to do this work. And Lord, I ask that you would make our church a place where suffering and grace and love and mercy all go hand in hand as we apply the gospel to one another, as we both look to Christ and help one another look to Christ. And Lord, we do ask that what we have not that you would give us, that what we know not that you would teach us, and that we are not that you would make us. Lord, make us for our good and for your glory to the praise 
of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.